Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is A.J. Coleman. He is the author of A Widower's Eight-Step Guide to Coping with Grief and Thriving Against All Odds. We talk about how he lost his wife to cancer and was left to raise a baby. Um, we talk, discuss his hearing impairment, going through job loss, panic attacks. Uh, we also get into the different steps in which you can or we can become single parents uh, and successful at it. I say we, like I have kids. Uh, we just got a dog, so apparently having a dog is the same as having a kid. I don't know if I agree with that. Anyway, welcome to the podcast, AJ Coleman. Well, AJ, I, I'm excited to have you on a podcast because Thank you wrote you. this book, A Widower's Eight-Step Guide to Coping with Grief and Thriving Against All Odds. Yes. And for the listeners, and, and also for myself, I want to say up front, when we think about grief, we usually tend to think about the loss of a loved one, you know, as in your case, you know, you, you, your wife died from cancer and, but when we're talking about grieving for myself, you know, I'm from Chicago, as you stated, like you're, you're in Chicago now. And so going from Chicago to LA, even if it's a, a step, you know, in the direction of my career and something I look forward to, there's still some grieving that comes along with the loss of culture and friends and having to start over. And, and you, you know, having daughters who are going from high school to college and college into the real world, there's a bit of grieving over, you know, losing that, that routine and that way of life and, and stepping out into a, a new world. And, and for people who are, who are like struggling with disabilities, if you were, quote unquote, able-bodied, and now you have this disability or, or this pain or, you know, or you lost your job. So what I'm saying is grief can take place on so many levels. So when you're, you know, even though your book is for widowers, you know, is, is marketed as such, I want the listeners to, to recognize the other areas in their life and in, in the ways of which they it, it, even if you're going on a diet, like if, if you're a person who used to be able to eat whatever, and now your doctor's like, you got to go like keto or carnivore or no more cakes or no, like there's a grief process that goes with that. Uh, so, so talk to us a little bit about what made you want to write this book? I mean, I've already, you know, hinted at it and talked about it a little bit. And then also what surprised you? the most while you were writing this book? Uh, great question. Um, yeah, I originally wrote the book as more of a memoir for my daughter who had lost her mother, kind of go through some of the internal thoughts that I had and the private moments and really for her to learn who I was, who her mother was. And it, it's always a challenge. I, I was 33 years old when my wife passed away. Our daughter was just a year old, and she was too young to remember her mother. And she hears stories, and she hears the laughter of, that we have on tape. And But she really didn't understand what happened. And writing the book enabled me to sort of go a little bit deeper. And I just thought it would just be for her. And people have always said that I have some 
philosophical types of viewpoints that resonate well with others. And why don't I just put it all together and just talk about my life? And I've always been one of those individuals that stay behind the scenes and just sort of let everything get notoriety. But I had to put myself out there. For me to help others, I needed to write this book. And the thing that surprised me the most is just how quickly I was able to write this book. A lot of times people say, well, it takes, you know, years. And yeah, it took a little bit of years to get their thoughts out for the memoir part. But when I actually sat down to write the book with some coaching from start to finish it, it was two months. Yeah, that, you know, what I love about that story is that I was talking to a friend earlier about what she wanted to do with her time. She, she has a job and is very demanding. She's in real estate. And she was like, I would love to be a great pianist and I would love to be a great artist that moves people. And I think that when we set our bar and our expectations so high of like wanting to be the, the Mozarts and the Brahms or, you know, the Stephen Kings of the world, that can be overwhelming. It can be stifling. But what I'm hearing from you, AJ, is what motivated you or part of what motivated you to write this story was you just thought about your daughter. You just wanted your daughter to have an understanding of what was happening and what has happened and to help her grieve through this. So even though the, the, the book was published for the, for the public to, to obviously read, this was really just, a, it was like a long letter to your daughter. And in two months with coaching, you got it done. Can you say more about the coaching? You know, it was something where they just said you need a little bit of structure in the book because the material in my life was very compelling and people can resonate and relate to it. But it didn't have, like I guess, what they call that inner voice chronological flow. So the coaching came out was let's make it, you know, we talk about keep those feet moving. Make it like your footsteps, my footsteps, our footsteps, and sort of help people guide along, like intertwine with your story and what others may be feeling. And once I got that first chapter done and the way that they sent it back with approval, and the rest of the book was easy to write because it was already there and the content was in my mind. And for me to establish credibility, I had to really go deep and really talk about who I was and some of my biggest fears, my biggest concerns. And for a long time, I used to be afraid what others thought of me. Writing this book kind of helped me get out there and just overcome that initial fear. So I'm a little confused when you, you said that they wanted you to go from talking about keeping your feet moving to keeping our feet moving. Can, can you give me an example of how, how you what it was and how you changed it? to be sure. more relatable? Sure. So when we talk about keep those feet moving and the different subtitles within each chapter, you know, we talk about my footsteps and those footsteps are like my story and what I've been able to do. When we talk about your footsteps, you know, these are things that you may relate to and here are tips on how you can overcome some of those things. And then the our footsteps are more like you know, how do we bring this all together, right? You and I together, we're in the same type of position and format and we have our own stories, but in the end, we're together. And then I have the last section was a self-reflection 
exercises that people can partake in to really challenge themselves as to where they want to grow and how they want to overcome whatever challenge that they have. So by putting it all together, I wanted to share the different footsteps that we're all taking in synergy. That, that's beautiful. And, and it also makes me think about ways to motivate people because I think a lot of times what we tend to do is, you know, especially when we're giving advice to someone is we go, here's what I would do. And, and what's more powerful is to say, yes, here's what I would do. But it sounds like what your book is doing is saying, here's what I did, but here's what you should do. So it's like, even though I did A, B, and C, I think you should do, you know, D, E, and F, but together we should do, you know, G, H, I kind of thing. You know, because yes, what I need to do and what you need to do are going to be two separate things. And then what we need to do set, you know, is it, it becomes a whole different thing unto itself. Exactly. And, and a lot of times what I find with grief in general, as you pointed out earlier, it's just not about a loss of a loved one. It can be a loss of companionship, a job, a disability, even just feeling just lost within yourself. And the idea behind this book is to help give people some guidance and supportive tips so they can move forward. A lot of times when we get stuck, we just stand in one place, sort of dancing around and looking for somebody to just guide us through. And this book is an opportunity to just put all sorts of different suggestions that would help me with a little bit of research is try to give back. Um, I'm definitely not a licensed uh uh, professional, but this is looking coming from the heart and saying, "Here, if you were to talk to me, here's what I would offer and recommend back to you." You were 33 when she passed away from cancer. Yes. Uh, two questions: What kind of cancer was it? And then also, was it quick or was this like you know three, ten years? Be because you know, I, I find that people grieve differently over like you know, losing somebody in a car accident to losing someone who battled with something for eight years and then they passed away. No, that's definitely, she had a brain cancer and uh, she was diagnosed two months after our daughter was born. And the surgery after they said that they couldn't get the, all the tumor out because it was right around the main artery of the brain, that they did give her a diagnosis of you know, it doesn't look good. You've got maybe a year to two years max. And from that moment, you start thinking in the back of your mind, it's like a countdown, like a clock. You know, we have a year to two years. I mean, we have a baby. Um, after I heard the news, I, I said, you know what? We're going to fight this thing. We're going to beat this thing. And I did everything I could to try to beat this thing. I, you know, from praying to, you know, pleading to just spending all our money on medical resources and needs. And um, it all worked out in a sense at the end where I'm able to give her that kind of life ending that she really probably dreamed of. And in the book, I wrote about how the last image she saw wasn't me. It was our daughter. And I couldn't have written a better ending. And that's where I find comfort and why I'm able to come forward today and just speak calmly, freely. And a lot of times I do smile because I celebrate my wife's life. 
and I celebrate people's lives. I don't mourn the loss. You, you know, and what when your wife, you know, had the diagnosis, so many people, you know, they go, wow, if I knew when I was going to die, they had this this dream that all of a sudden, you know, they would spend all this money or live a, a wild life or do all these crazy things. What is it that you found that your wife valued in those in the time that she had left? What 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 became important to her? It's a hard question to answer because when you go through brain cancer and you have surgery and sometimes the life becomes altered, right? Your perception and your just entire lot processes change depending on where the tumor sits, everything like that. So when she came out of surgery, the doctors informed us that she would have limited or no uh, mobility in her right side of the body, wouldn't be able to walk or talk, and the right arm may not ever work in the sense where she can have full movement. And it was really tough to hear because, again, you started seeing her personality became altered. It wasn't the same person that I had married. And I would tell you right after post-op, when we had gone into the room, she spoke Spanish to me. She was a Spanish teacher. I didn't speak Spanish well. But what we learned is on the frontal lobe is where the primary language is where it's stored and the secondary languages that you speak are more in the back. So I had to learn quickly a Spanish to be able to converse with her. And slowly she started talking in English and connecting back. She went through a very aggressive um, rehabilitation. And I'm proud to say that she actually did walk. I mean, she walked with a little bit of a limp slow, but for her to get to one place to the other, as for the left, uh, the right arm, um, it never really came back. It, it was just unfortunate where the disease was that took over. But I would tell you, she changed our daughter's diaper better with one hand than I did with two. <laughs> um, but, it, it, you know, we never really talked about the unknown, my wife and I, because I really didn't accept it. She never brought it up. I don't even know if she really understood what was really the outcome was going to be. The hard thing about when you have these type of diagnosis, I believe you have two options. One, you either fall into a deep hole and just get all depressed and you just don't know what else to do and you just look for guidance, or you basically move forward and you do everything you can and not accept the diagnosis, but also more so it's like, I'm going to fight this one. I know what the doctors tell me. I know what they're going to tell me when it comes time. And like, I'm just having all these false hopes. But that's something that I didn't accept. And that's why we never talked about the unknown. And maybe we should have. Maybe we didn't. I guess for me, the fear of dying is so great that I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't accept it. What was the response from your family and hers? So uh, her family was very supportive. They, they understood, um, you know, 
what we had was actually my wife had a brain cancer five years earlier, but it was an uh, astrocytoma and she had beaten it. And that's why we never would have thought. So her family was sort of used to some of the doctor visits, but they didn't accept the final diagnosis either. Like, hey, we beat this before. We can do this again. Um, my family was a little bit different. We were living in uh, Arizona at the time. I was working for my father. And my parents had just started to build a relationship with us because we had moved from Chicago down the year before. And it was hard on them. They grieved the loss of us moving. And it was a challenge for them to really understand what was happening. But I knew my wife wanted to be with her family who lived back in Chicago. And we ended up moving back to Chicago. So it's like you go down there for an opportunity, and then you come up for another opportunity. And the, the support we had was overwhelming, very positive. People just came to us. They wanted to help. They wanted to see what they can do, obviously, with the excitement of a baby. You know, they want to see that, too. But as time went on, some of that support kind of weaned off a little bit. People just didn't know how to handle um, the situation. I mean, we were young and theoretically we didn't have a blueprint on what to do. Um, our, my family, you know, it was challenging. I had a very supportive people around me. Um, but even still, you know, we were never a close knit family where we openly talked about our lives. I think, uh, when I wrote the book, the first thing my mother said after reading, she's like, well, you never opened up to us in 46 years, but you can open yourself up in your book. I said, Ma, it's not about you. It's about helping others. She's like, wait till your father reads this. And I'm like, I'm 46 years old. Why do I have to worry about what my father's going to say, right? But, you know, everybody handles grief differently. And her family definitely mourned the loss. Uh, they saw what it can do, and it took some time to build up the relationships, right? There's a lot of anger, a lot of pain, and uh, at the end, I think we just had to work extra hard on our relationships, and where we are today, I think it's really critical that having that support back then has a better understanding of where we're going today. And I had since gotten remarried. And before I had done that, I had gone to my in-laws of my wife and shared with them what I was thinking and prepare them. And we walked through the process and I was sort of looking for their blessing to say, it's okay, AJ, you can move forward. Um, but in the long part of what you're process when you go through that morning is like trying to find a balance between two different families with two different perceptions it's tough and at 33 years old I mean what did I know I mean I can barely you know figure out how to care for a one-year-old at the time it didn't come with a blueprint or a manual from the hospital and I've got to figure out how to change and do all these things and I think the hardest part for me was trying to match up the clothes having having the outfit, you know, to just disco together. So yeah, I mean, were there were there resources uh provided to you from the hospital or from friends? Did you see a therapist? What 
like what outside resources did you connect with to help you through this, if any? I didn't utilize any resources. I, I just, at the time it happened, I had two different thoughts going through my mind. One, I'd have to figure out how to rebuild myself back from the grief and how do I manage to overcome my emotions? How do I handle a full-time job, raising a baby, handling the expenses that are all left behind, handling family members and and friends? And the other part was, there was a perception that people, I think, expected me to sort of fall apart. They expected me to just cave in and say, okay, you know, I can't do this anymore. Can you help raise my daughter? And nobody publicly said it to me, but the perception I think others felt, and I needed to prove to them to be strong. And in the end, for therapy, I just didn't have the time between working 60 hours a week, raising my daughter, everything. I just just had no time. And everything that I've done is really self-taught. And I've looked at myself and said, where do I want to go? What kind of life do I want to live? And I have to be strong for my daughter. I, I know you also talk in your book about uh, the hearing impairment. Can you say yes. more about that? So for 46 years, I never openly discussed my hearing impairment. I was born with a uh, impairment through hair cells that didn't properly grow in the inner ear. And back in the late 70s, there wasn't a whole lot of education for me or for my parents, rather, on what to expect from a social aspect, what to expect when you go through the schooling system. And a lot of it I had to figure out on my own. My father tells the story that um, when you go to school, I need to be able to see the teacher. I learned early to rely on lip reading facial expressions to help compensate what I couldn't hear. And the principal at the time said, well, if your son is having trouble, he can go to a school for the deaf. And where we lived in Chicago, it was more of a fluent neighborhood where it just, you're kind of keeping up with everybody else from a social aspect. And it was really hard. I can't imagine what they went through, but years I got older. I was subject to ridicule, some bullying, people making fun of certain things. If I couldn't hear, they would they was like, what, what, what? And it got to be where kind of hurt. Um, and dating life was a, it's a whole nother story on, you know, who wanted to date somebody who had an impairment. You know, it wasn't open like things are today. Uh, writing this book not only enabled me to come open about my hearing disability, but also to accept it, something that I have suppressed my entire life. And it's almost like a been a, a kind of a relief, right? And that's part of that grief. I grieved for 46 years on my hearing loss, trying to hide it from everybody and anybody and working harder. And uh, I think the pandemic kind of took away my superpower of reading the lips because everybody was wearing masks and I was just like, can't do this anymore. Like I, I, I'm, I can't answer certain questions. So, but it's, uh, it's, it's been a, it's been a long journey for me to get to where I am today to actually acknowledge it. So I appreciate you bringing that forward too. So, what's your level of hearing? Because you know, right now, my, you know, the 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 
listeners can't see, but my lips are blocked and I have a mic in front, but I, I see you have air, earphones in. So does it have to be multiplied 100x or is there a translation? Well, the volume is turned up a little bit on the computer and um, I'm reading your facial expressions from your eyes up and I can definitely hear in kind conversation like one-on-one like this is when we get into the big group settings or anything like that that's when it becomes muffled um and i have to really rely on lip reading from across the room um it does help when you go out places sometimes and you can see what uh people are you know flirtatious about right and say oh should i approach this person or not but um you know i've learned to compensate certain things um so i can hear through the speakers hear through the headphone, but advocating for myself when I can't hear something is new territory for me. And so, yeah, how do you how do you bring that up? You know, if you're if you do you say can you speak louder or like how do you how do you bring that up in a social context? So lately, since the book has come out, I, I've actually asked and told, "Hey, I'm hearing impaired. Can you?" speak a little louder? Can you speak a little slower for me? Um, prior to that, I would just nod. I would try to put the pieces together on what people were saying. And there were times where, unfortunately, I probably misheard something completely and answered it wrong completely. And that's a whole nother experience because now people are like laughing and saying, I, I didn't ask you that question. Um, but it, it's largely where I go back to sometimes when we're not educated properly on what the expectations are, not only short term, but the long term, it prolongs that grief period like I've had for 46 years to say, to openly acknowledge it. So there's shortcuts that I use on a regular basis. Um, it does, you know, we could play around with it a little bit. And when I get me out of doing some chores, you know, if, I'm like, if I don't hear it, then I don't do it, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I would imagine that, you know, <laughs> raising, because if you, you know, with her passing away at 33 and now you're with a one-year-old, like that has to be a bit scary for you of like, you know, making sure that you can hear her, you know, in the middle of the night, if there's an emergency and, and things of that nature. Um, that was tough. Um, thank goodness for technology where you have those uh, little walkie talkie type phones when she's napping I carried it with me um you know there are times that I didn't sleep much because I was so worried about her waking up but once she started sleeping throughout the night you know, I started having a little bit more comfort to know um how to uh, you know address that you know don't really need to solve your own problems with it um as she got older it was tough because when we would converse you know one-on-one within a couple of feet of each other, no problem. But if I'm in the kitchen attempting to make a meal and she's in her bedroom playing and she calls out to me, it's sort of like, did I hear something? Did I not hear something? And then I either go back to what I'm doing or I have to stop what I'm doing and go check it out. So um, it's definitely a challenge as a parent, and especially when you don't disclose to your child that you have a, a hearing impairment. But I think she gets it um, nowadays. And there's sometimes where she has to remind me, like, hey, did you hear what I said? 
do you understand what I said? And I'm like, yeah, I do. Thank you. Or no, I'm sorry, I missed it. So it definitely challenges, but at the end, I've worked hard to try to overcome and compensate that. And I've done well, but as I've learned, who I am is part of who I am today. You, you know, it, it, it sounds like, yeah, on one hand, it's extremely challenging. On the other hand, I would imagine that there are these moments that you get because you're surprised at how compassionate other people can be when they do find out. Because I, I would imagine that I'd be like, oh, man, nobody wants to, you know, once they find out, this is going to be an issue. And then there had to be these moments where I'm sure you were like, wow, like, I told them it wasn't a big deal, and it actually brought us closer together. Have you had those kind of moments? Yeah, I've had, gosh, the opposite. So when you're growing up in elementary school and to middle school and to high school, you're basically growing up with the same people. So they know all about who you are, and they knew about my disability. They knew that I had trouble, and really you know, having a good circle of friends, having it from a dating perspective was really a challenge because people just didn't want to be associated. They, I wasn't the same as maybe the next type person. So in high school, I actually took out my hearing aids and basically would try to um, sneak around my parents, sneak around everybody and pretend that my hearing was basically cured because I was so concerned about the social perception. When I got to college, I went to school at University of Florida. I didn't know anybody there. And that was an eye-opener that I could reinvent myself and nobody knows anything about back home. And I didn't even wear my hearing aids at all during college. And I felt like I was one of the most popular guys on campus, talking to people, always interacting, going out and having a great time and meeting a lot of great people. But no one knew really the true person that I had. When I met my first wife, Corey, when I told her, she shrugged it off. Like it was like no big deal. She's like, thank you for sharing. It makes sense now. We've been dating for maybe about two months before I had mentioned anything to her. And she just was had that empathy and said, so what? And I was like, and then, you know, as time goes on, you start looking in your career, right? You know, what do others perceive? You know, are you going to be passed up on promotion? So it, I continue to hide through that. Um, and now when I talk to different people and I say, hey, I have a hearing impairment, they're like, oh, okay. And then they'll speak a little louder or little things like that. Um, some of my friends, I think, who I've known for a long time that may not have known about it, I haven't really sat down to talk to them and say, hey, what do you think? And I'm trying not to make it a big deal. And I think that's the problem with society today is that when there's a sudden change in appearance or a preference or even just somebody who gets unfortunately ill, it's like we make such a big deal of something and we forget about what it's like to be more comforting and say, oh, okay, great. You know, you got a hearing disappearance. Okay. 
how can we help you? And I think people are just more genuine and understanding today than they ever have been. Yeah, you know, I read somewhere that babies learn sign language faster than yeah. talking. And I'm just like, why aren't we all learning sign language? Like, it just seems ridiculous to me. And, and I'm a big military guy. I love military yeah. movies. And they, you know, when they're on these covert operations, they use a bunch of sign language so that they're not detected. So it's mm-hmm. it's interesting how you can frame something in a way that, you know, empowers people or makes it cool or whatever. Uh, versus it's like we're all walking around with earpieces in. And if you asked me when I was a kid, it would have been like, no, that's insane. Like, you know, it, it's because it, that was that would have been associated with a, a hearing disability. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, times change how we perceive things. And, um, and, and you talked about looking for work and being afraid of how employers would see it. I know that you experienced a job loss. What were you doing before where you experienced that? And what are you doing now? Gee, so I've been in uh, financial crimes for 20 years now. Um, fraud, anti-money laundering, counterterrorism, just following the money, you know, from what people are doing. And I've dabbled into different private accounting, public accounting, just to learn different areas of where fraud is. Um, and when I began my career, again, you know, it was a challenge because I'm trying to compensate and show my worth as well as compensating for my hearing. And there were times where I would sometimes have to use a hearing aid or two to, to get through a meeting or get through the uh, some of the tasks and challenges. And I actually had a situation at a company where somebody said, hey, I didn't know you wore hearing aids. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, my childhood's coming back to me within a split second. And I was worried that, like, do I get reported to HR? Do I, you know, get passed up on promotion because now I'm labeled with something that is an impairment and how that impacts my work? And I basically went back into hiding the entire impairment all over again. And it wasn't until you know, where we are today, where I'm recognizing it and being open. And uh, at times I just got new hearing aids for the first time in 30 years to to help me in these situations as I'm getting older and I'm learning about how to be more accepting of who I am, but also recognizing that I do need these devices when I'm out walking around in, in a public setting because I really can't hear that far, more like 10 feet, 20 feet away. I can read your lips. I can read your facial expressions. But am I going to get everything? No. I I used to work security at nightclubs. And I would put earplugs in my ears because it drowned out the background noise. And I could hear people better i could hear voices better i can hear talking more effectively mm-hmm. and yeah. you know i didn't care you know you know people were like what are those in your ears and i'm just like you know i, I was just thinking about functionality you know mm-hmm. that i was like i can hear and that's because that's what i need i don't need to hear the music i need to hear what people are saying and, and being able to be 
responsive in that way. Um, your book, A Widower's Eight-Step Guide to Coping with Grief and Thriving Against All Odds, uh, what's a step that you have found people connect with the most or were like, oh, you know, I hadn't really thought about that? Wow, that's uh, that's a great question. When I, when I wrote the book and people have given me feedback, a lot of people have come forward and saying, I'm really glad you talked about the loss of a pet because the pets are really depending on who you are. are like our own little fur children or if they're uh, maybe not necessarily if they're a reptile, they're obviously like a child. We treat them, they rely on us as much as we rely on them. And I was really surprised of how many people gravitated and connected with that short section in the book about how to overcome the loss of a pet. And, you know, a lot of our times our, our pets are used for comfort. They're used for activity. They're used for conversation starters. I mean, how many times do you have to start your conversation and say, my pet did this. Can you believe that? Um, but it, was, it really resonated well, and that caught me by surprise. I wasn't anticipating that to be a big focal point, but I'm glad I put it in. Um, it was something that I was kind of wrestling back and forth. You know, we're talking about a loss of a loved one, a human, going through cancer, going through an illness. And all of a sudden, we're going to just stick in, oh, well, it's no different than the loss of a pet. And I've, I've, I've lost uh, my dog. She was almost 16 years old two years ago. And it was tough on me because she was really the one that helped me mourn and get over some of the grief because, you know, if I'm crying, she's coming over and licking the tears off my face, right? And she, she'd been there and it was a, a decision that my wife and I had made together. As soon as we got married, we're like, oh, married life is great. How can we complicate our lives? And then we said, well, let's get a dog. And we're like, great, we'll get a puppy. And, and you know, it was one of those things together. So when she passed away, it was sort of like the last thing that we we did together, like the final decision that we made. But I think people look at their pets as their companion. They dictate their entire lives around those pets. Oh, I got to get home and let the dog out. Or, oh my gosh, this dog, you know, did something here. Or my cat scratched up the wall, right? And you look back and you're like, smile. Because that's who we are. These They're a byproduct of who we are. Uh, I love that. And yeah, because a friend of mine actually just recently lost his pet. And hearing oh. you talk about all the ways in which a, a pet nourishes us and gives us life and vitality. Uh, we're going to give them a call after this. Cause I, I, mm. I was probably a bit dismissive of, I was like, Oh, you lost a pet, you know, like, um, and <clears throat> is there anything else from your book that we haven't talked about that you think would be of value to anybody who's coping with grief or loss? Yeah, I think, we haven't talked about the dating aspect. And when you're looking at dating, I mean, dating today, I, I mean, it's such a, it's a puzzle. And I mean, it's just so difficult to navigate through the different types of distractions that are out there. But the one thing I did want to highlight is there are some differences when you're dating 
a widower, a widow versus dating somebody who got divorced. And some of the differences really are outlined in a sense that we, as a widower, we still love our spouse. We're still in love. Our, our marriage ended due to a tragedy. And when people get divorced, often or not, there is some sort of anger that's left behind. And they talk about how they feel about their former spouse. When a widower, a widower gets involved, and we're talking loving, affectionately, and you know, sometimes we break down, uh, sometimes we do things and we get confused. Uh, I mean, sometimes we call our spouses, you know, or whoever we're dating the wrong name by mistake because we're so used to our spouse. And the one thing that I will always advocate for is just have patience. It's, it's not easy. Some people who are grieving, they get into a relationship right away because they're searching for companionship. They don't want to be alone. And that's okay. And you, you have to do what's best for you. And it's not really for anybody else to criticize or tell you, well, you didn't mourn long enough. You're getting involved with somebody else. It's not for them to say. And I think that's what often gets misled is to the grief process is how do you move on and recognize your own needs? You put your needs behind because you've been in the why factor of mourning. Why did this happen? Why me? Why did this loved one go through? And then when you move yourself from the why into the where, where am I going? Where do I want to go? And how am I going to get there? Then you start working through some of those mental blocks on the dating aspect to be able to move forward. But it's only you that can choose that, not somebody else, not anybody else. And if you get somebody who's divorced, they got divorced for a different reason. You start dating them, there are different dynamics involved. But as long as two people can recognize the challenges and work it together, then you have a beautiful sailing. And that, that's why when we date, we're creating a puzzle. We're looking for a masterpiece. And we're trying to find different pieces to put in and out to try to construct something that's long-lasting. So I think when we look at grief, something we haven't thought about much is how does it impact the dating life? It's companionship. People need people. People need people. I love that. Uh... And I also love the whole, you know, getting from a why to where, you know, it, it's so true because in the, in the searching of the why, there's so much suffering in why this, why that, why me? And, and when you go about where, it's like, all right, where do I want to go? And, and uh, where do I want to be? And, um, and even, you know, getting into the what's of like, what do I have? What are my resources? Um, but yeah, getting out that why. Yeah, I think that's a really a critical piece in how to cope to overcome some of that mourning part because some people might equate the where as how. How can I do this? How can I do that? Because I'm in that mentality of keep those feet moving, you know, moving around. That's where I'm getting to where, like where am I want to go? And I do think when people transition from the why to the where, that's where the healing ultimately begins. And you're accepting what happened 
and just saying, I'm going to do something better. And it could be anything from a loss of a loved one, a loss of a job, a loss of a disability, companionship, spirituality, as you're moving that that way. And that's really the question I think any of us should be asking. Am I in a why phase or am I in the where? And that's that's really, I think, the real key to success and why you can celebrate life. And, and if you're struggling with the where, just remove the W and start here. See what yeah. I did there? See what I did there? Come on. Guys. Yeah, I, I like um, that. But also love, you know, when you talked about, you know, we're it's dating is a puzzle and we're looking for our, our masterpiece. I see what you did there. That was very clever of you also. Uh, last question I want to ask, and I ask this of all my listeners, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, AJ? The first thing I would say to them is how did we get here? What steps were missed? And where could you have found joy? Because a lot of times I think people who get to that mental, they never came out of that why. They never came out and found joy and recognized the big picture. And I would do everything I could to try to motivate, inspire. A lot of times that when we depart and we ascend to the heavens, it's our legacies that get left behind, the stories that are told. The question I would probably pose at the very end is what does your legacy look like? And how do you want that legacy to unfold? Thank you so much, AJ. Thank you so much, the listeners. Thank you. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Call the 988 or any of the international phone numbers. If you're in Toronto or the Ukraine or Chile or Peru, wherever you are in the world, Detroit, call any of the phone numbers. You can talk, you can chat, you can text, you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. And in the meantime, pick up that A Widower's Eight-Step Guide to Coping with Grief and Thriving Against All Odds. You can get that on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Thank you so much, AJ Coleman. Thank you very much for having me.